Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome to Keywords in Play. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Greg Whiston-Smith. I'm an intern architect in Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. And I so have a background in architecture, but also a long time interest in uh, video games, really indie games. And then I guess higher budget Japanese games. I've not played a lot of higher budget Western ones, I guess, out of lack of interest or something. But uh, outside of my architecture degrees, I've also got a degree in digital humanities at the University of Alberta here. And that was during that degrees where I started doing the work that became this book. So I've, I've got a book that just came out this year called Expressive Space, Embodying Meaning in Video Game Environments. And so unsurprisingly, I'm uh, looking at video games the way an architect might and looking at the spaces of those environments. And I guess I should also say all of these wonderful things we have now that are not very gamey. So walking simulators and things that are kind of sitting in a edge point, they're definitely environmental though. So that was part of the interest for me. And, and I said that I was an intern, I should, I should clarify, it means I'm just about to be a licensed architect. So you do all this education and they still call you an intern, even though you're paid and even though you do almost the whole job an architect does. So it's kind of a funny quirk that is probably worth noting. Oh, is that kind of like doctors? Yeah, yeah, it'd be like residency stuff, exactly. Yeah, we, we are desperate for them to use a different term and they don't want to. So that's professional associations for you. Could you say a little about what your practice is like at the moment? Because it's really interesting to me that you're operating outside of a university context and kind of continuing your training within an architecture firm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, the work we do, I'm really lucky to be at this office I'm at, that we do a lot of community-focused buildings. So kind of anything that we can get, it's like, I guess, uh, five architects and an admin person, which is really rare for us in our city, where usually you have draftspeople as well as full architects that all have their master's degrees and experience. So it's a high, high expertise office. And so I guess for that, it's it's very much all the questions of architecture and day-to-day life. And then with the interest in game studies and video game environments on the side, but I mean, kind of a balance. Um, there's all those questions of expression in space and understanding the experiential sides of space. And so in a sense, I bring that view from the games back into my day-to-day practice in a strong way. And some of the practical things of getting buildings made, I mean, most of the job of an architect is actually project management. It's about 10% design and 90% project management. And I think once you make your peace with that, <laughs> it goes a lot better. A lot of people think it's more more design than it is, sadly, but um, that's obviously very applicable. And I don't know if we'll get too much into it here, but from a labor perspective and an office perspective, there's a lot of overlap between how you structure an architecture office and how you'd structure either a small or larger game development office, which I think not much has been said about it, but it's a really interesting overlap that, of course, also in some ways applies to film and TV, but, but that's a whole other thing. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard it put that way before. I'd seen people say that there's a disciplinary overlap that's a bit neglected um, in terms of yeah. the problems that you're thinking about 
and the affordances of the kind of stuff you're designing and like your medium of expression but I didn't realize that the way that you practice or the way that you organize practice would be so similar yeah it, it certainly can be and it was a funny thing so I was interested in independent games well before even going into architecture school and um I kind of understood architecture had a tier of, we'll call them boutique practices, of which I'm now working at one, I guess. And it was kind of funny. I was like, oh, this will happen. This will be indie games. And, you know, give it 10 years and you've got players like Annapurna now that have kind of helped fund this tier of type of practice, which is super different than working in a massive, you know, 200 person office, right? Which, of course, we also have in architecture. So it's kind of a funny, yeah, you know, I, I expected it had happened. Here it is, you know, it's uh, just late capitalist mess for you. <laughs> it's not yeah, so good. Yeah, because then but... it also makes me think about outsourcing and how that's very similar. Oh, yeah. And some of that does happen for us now, too, in ways it didn't even happen 10 years ago. So that's been a kind of uncomfortable, like, oh, no, architecture's <laughs> finding ways to do it, too, unfortunately. But there you go. So I think for me, yeah, it's the book doesn't really get into the industry study stuff. But I think, may, you know, maybe I'll write something on that in the future. And uh, in both cases, I mean, the funny thing. Um, for about, I don't know, 30 years now, architectural visualization, so making renders and making any um, thing, you know, visuals on the computer of an unbuilt project, we're getting table scraps from the game industry, basically. And so most of the main ones have been putting out sort of architect-directed engines now. So there's like a skin for the Unreal Engine that I use a fair bit now that's just a really simple-to-use interface that you plug your model of the building you've designed into, and it just does a lot of the heavy lifting. And again, it's I kind of was thinking that would exist at some point back in 2010. And I think by about 2018, that put this commercial product out there. And why do you think there was demand for that? There is a funny generational gap in architecture where only the younger people, and I guess now that would be under 35, let's say, but um, had more tech proficiency. And so the funny thing was, if you're trained as an architect later, um, all the older people in the office that did a lot more by hand would rely on you to do the visualization and stuff like that. And so I think the desire, there's a correct desire in architecture to try to really think through a building before you build it, especially with the giant sums of money involved. And there's no equivalent to playtesting. And so you're really flying blind a lot. And that's terrifying when you're talking about a $200 million building, which is actually not even that high as far as things can go. You know, an airport might be twice that. So um, it's that kind of, I think when it's done right, and the, I don't know, promise that I see in those tools is a better way of engaging with the experiential side through this simulation of space. And that pulls it right back to the book where, um, you know, we can draw it all we want. We can make physical models, which can help. But having a simulated first person walk through, let's say, a museum, if the experience of that is kind of bland and boring, well, you should know that <laughs> when you do it in the simulation. It won't be quite the same as walking through it, but it'll give you a taste of what that could be. And so I kind of see it as a way of trying to pull playtesting into architecture, for lack of a maybe better way to say that. But That sounds like a really interesting way to say it. But I guess the limitation is do architecture clients want to think of what they're doing as play? Is that kind of why the term feels a bit clunky? Uh, that's funny, I, because I haven't even thought of saying it to them. I, I think, yeah, you, we probably wouldn't present it to them using that language. But I think if we use it, maybe that language of testing still or of... Um, 
really helping them understand what it is they're spending a giant sum of money on and the value in that. Because right now we're still in a situation, more or less globally, there are some exceptions to that, where um, you're seeing images and, and you're spending these large sums of money based on some drawings and some kind of photorealistic image. But of course, an image is a representation of space. It's not spatially really experiential. It's not, there's none of that sense of movement through it. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's more than nothing, but less than maybe what we desire to have. But that is changing. Yeah. So um, yeah, expressive space is basically my look at how can a video game environment be meaningful to its players. It can be meaningful in tons of ways. We kind of know that intuitively, but the intent of this book was really to break that up more, I guess we'll say more analytically, and look at the different ways it can be meaningful and find, try to put together, let's say a toolkit, which is how I viewed it, of a set of theories that could be used kind of predictably to at least get started on unpacking meaning. Because I'm not, I'm not a believer of, you know, one tool for every situation. And so I think the book kind of shows it too, that depending on what you're looking at, you have to pull in other theories and do other things too. But I, in the book, I introduce five theories from a field called embodied cognition as ways of getting into that. And some of these theories are older and more established, and um, maybe I'll talk about them in a moment and you will have heard of them, but uh, some of them are a little bit newer and you may not have in other scholarship. And so I found that together they did a pretty good job of doing a kind of first start at getting at the meaning of spaces and covering the kind of breadth of what you'd see in game environments. And so the thing about it too was um, really a key idea in the book is that video game environments are a new type of built environment. And so if you haven't come across that in other scholarship, basically um, built environment is just any kind of environment that people have constructed for some kind of reason, basically. So roads, buildings, um, infrastructure, you think dams. And the whole idea of that is, of course, we have the natural environment that's just going about what it's doing. And we definitely interfere with it when we build built environments. But there is an intention be behind a built environment. And we always know that someone did this for some reason. And so there's a sense of authorship there. And there's also a sense in which a built environment actually usually wants us to behave in a certain kind of way inside that environment. It was made for something. So yes, you can sleep on a park bench, but maybe the city authorities are gonna be angry about that and put anti-homelessness spikes on it and be awful and you know try to discourage that activity because they just want the park bench for seniors sitting in the park feeding birds, right? I mean, to use a flippant example. So I think thinking about these game environments, video games are very vast and they try to do a lot of different things. And I kind of felt the scholarship was a bit lacking in that regard to maybe just straight up from the get-go say these aren't really the same thing. They're in the same medium. They're using the same technology. So, so that's kind of the starting point of the book, I guess. Bit of a mouthful, but there you go. It's interesting to me to think about hostile architecture, like anti-homelessness measures and stuff yeah. in terms of embodied cognition. Yeah. Like the body interpreting a space and getting a sense of what's allowed and not allowed here and whether the, that body is allowed in that space. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So embodied cognition is a relatively new kind of interdisciplinary pursuit, for lack of a way to put it. So we've got people in philosophy, psychology, cognitive science, um, linguistics, and a bunch of other fields. Actually, robotics, too, which gets really interesting because there's all these questions about if you're trying to make a real bodied, embodied robot, how's it going to behave differently, right? And um, so 
basically what that theory is arguing is that human thinking and abstract reasoning is deeply grounded in our embodied lives. So, so it's also called grounded cognition sometimes, and some people do prefer that term. But the idea is just being in a body is actually a huge deal. <laughs> All our experiences of the world are through that body. And that creates for us, um, I love how someone's, I'm forgetting the theorists now. So uh, if they hear this, I'm sorry, but they called it a phenomenological bedrock of, of life. And I think it's, it was a great way to put it because it's like we just have, we know what it's like to hold objects. We know what it's like to put clothes on. We know what it's like to go inside of buildings and go outside of buildings. And so that base level experience really shapes our higher levels of reasoning. Maybe I'll just segue from that into those five theories in the book. So the probably most significant one in some ways for this discussion, though, maybe not, maybe they're all equal, but um, the conceptual metaphor theory, um, Johnson and Lakoff being the big names for that, that people may have heard, is arguing that we have this kind of abstract understanding is grounded in sensory motor experience. That kind of shows up in language, but there's been a lot of studies done now that are not linguistic. And so it's nice to have some you know, verification using other methods. And so an example of that would be to say, I grasp that idea in English as using this metaphor of like grasping an object is the same experiential feeling as holding an idea in your head. And so another one, we say theories or buildings. You can buttress a theory, have a foundation for a theory, construct a theory. And I can also get poetic and say, I got lost in the winding hallways of his theory. And you all kind of know what I meant, right? Because we already have this metaphor. There's a strong, in that case, a linguistic component, but they're arguing that really it goes beyond language. It's more of an experiential thing that is kind of reflected in language and then does shape our thinking once it's in the language as well. So in the case of spaces, um, a famous example everyone will know is the Sydney Opera House. It has those kind of, you know, evocative white forms, right? So you see it and it has to mean something. So, um, you know, it could be beaks, it could be sails, it could be shells. And that ambiguity actually makes it a bit more interesting, but it's inviting us to read something metaphoric in the space. The other end of the spectrum, affordances, is just the idea of when you're in a space, um, you first perceive it by what you can do in that space. And so that goes back to J.J. Gibson and environmental psychology way back when. That's been talked about a bit more in game studies. And so very much in the case of this book, we're thinking about how can the player use the controls because they're not always the same, but also how can the avatar do things in the world and how quickly we start to kind of experience the game world through the avatar's affordances and sometimes changing affordances. So gaining or losing strength and what you can do in that game world. And then the last three, uh, image schemas is this idea of low-level spatial patterns in the world. It's also tied into the conceptual metaphor side of things. And so it's basically arguing that that day-to-day -day life experience with um, affordances as well results in like a really small number of patterns, probably in the hundreds, as opposed to thousands. And so things like a center and periphery, up and down, inside-outside links, cycles and also like uh, other kinds of cycles like the seasons where there's multiple peaks in a cycle. So all of those things are kind of low level patterns and they take on more meaning through metaphor and through just how we understand things. And so that's a really, really useful tool for thinking about both the moment to moment mechanics in a game and also the structure of the entire game world can take on meaning that way. I enjoyed that one a lot. I found it particularly, as you say, like when it gets in dialogue with metaphors um, and you uh, have this really nice way of like highlighting text within paragraphs at that point in the book, which like, okay, like, like in caps, like here's a metaphor 
um, oh. like life is a journey or something like that and like this is using the image schema of the path and it's really nice to kind of see that unfolding as you look at lots of different games yeah, and I have I have Johnson Lakoff to thank for that because they started that small caps convention, and so everyone in that field kind of has to fight with the publishers to say, hey, like this is a field convention to make it clear we're talking about this cognitive structure, not about the word. And so occasionally I don't sort of intentionally when I'm not talking about the word, not the cognitive structure, but yeah. And so really the final two are easier, I guess, or, or ones you people may have heard again, which is framing in the environment. So this idea that um, if we regularly go to a certain kind of environment, we build up a frame for it and a cognitive frame of expectations. So we expect a restaurant to have waiters and tables, and we expect a doctor's office to have a doctor and examining equipment. And we know that we're supposed to be examined by the doctor and not the other way around. And um, the elements in that space prime us to think about what frame to use. And so you see footsteps in the snow, you're primed to think about a person walking there. And so that, that takes us through all the theories. I think priming people probably will have heard of that um, in passing. And it's just a really common thing in these game environments. You see a ruin, so you're primed to think about what it used to be, right? And it's a really, um, it's like the indexical storytelling that I'm sure people have heard where you leave traces around to, to think of that. That's awesome. Thank you for going over that. So who did you write this book for and how do you hope that it's going to be used? Yeah, so I kind of wrote it in two directions, and it's using three disciplines, so it was kind of brutal for game studies, architecture, theory, and embodied cognition. And so I guess in a sense, it's those three audiences. So I think, you know, there's a younger generation of architects that play games and are aware of all this, but I also don't even know if a lot of them have made the connection per se, or to really critically thought about how those spaces can speak back to the practice of, of their day-to-day -day world. And I think there's a really nasty thing going on where we have these beautiful candy-coated game worlds and we have more dull and dreary and globally homogenous, you know, late capitalist spaces and architecture. And I don't know that people want that. <laughs> so I think that's, um, you know, I don't think that architects want it either, but um, you don't always choose who's paying you and what they want from you. So there's a lot of economic reasons for that. But I think it's a really important thing to be thinking of. And, and sometimes it doesn't cost any more to make a building a color instead of gray or brown, right? So I think this weird division that's happening between the virtual built environment and the non-virtual built environment is worth considering. So architects are one, and also just introducing them to what actually is out there in games now, because I think they're just not aware of the kind, something like Naissance that's so much about architecture. It's, it's a game that is about architecture in all, all ways. I think everyone should be playing that in architecture school now, I think, as a kind of thinking about procession, which is one of the things we learn about and think a lot about for certain kinds of buildings. So that's one. Um, people in embodied cognition, there's been a growth of stuff of basically media studies with embodied cognition. So there's some books on film and advertising and uh, material culture that I cite in there. And so I think really um, there's some individual papers that have done it for game studies, but not a whole book. So mine would be the first to be doing that now that I'm aware of anyway. And lastly, really is uh, game studies. And I probably should have said that first, but I'm hoping with this book to... I guess provide this set of tools and a little bit of a, you know, rattle the birdcage to say every single game we're looking at has some spatial component. It might be minor. I mean, in a visual novel, it gets pretty minor, but um, 
some of them have a huge spatial component and these other things are happening, but they're happening in the space. So how can we kind of acknowledge this foundational part of the experience that we may not actually be paying a lot of conscious awareness to, but kind of tie it into our bigger understanding of the game. And so my hope really in, in using these tools and trying to spell them out and then use 12 case studies to kind of work through them was to say, you know, please, if you think these are good, use them, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not just for me. So, which makes, I guess, quite a different book than a kind of like humanities thing where you're just talking about all the theories through the whole book, right? I think it's kind of a funny book for where it kind of lands. Yeah, I, we, case analysis is quite big in architecture. I think it's a really useful way to get into details, to, you know, pick three things and compare them. And so that was, for me, always kind of an obvious choice to approach it that way. So there's lots of concrete examples and lots of uh, getting into the details of these different games. Yeah, because the structure of the book is, um, like, it's very clear and organised and... Um, I know how difficult it is to do that, where you've got 12 examples of games and you're developing a set of ideas through these examples, but I imagine that in your own head you're using all of the ideas all at the same time when you look at all of the games, but you're having to like choose how you, like, how you develop uh, the ideas more with each new game that you look at. Um, so it makes it really pleasant for the reader, but conceptually I know it's quite a challenging thing to do. Yeah, well, and it's in a sense, the decisive step was selecting the games. So maybe I'll really briefly mention which games I talk about because you've got in here pretty late. So the first uh, cluster of games are ones that are about exploration and inhabitation. So that's um, Knit Stories is this old Swedish metroidvania that's a lovely little game that has strong atmospheres in its area. It's nonviolent and it was just a really great kind of introductory game in, in my view to get into this. And then the other two in that chapter are The Night Journey, which is this kind of simulated spiritual quest thing with fuzzy visuals and Naissance, which is all about a procession. And so that chapter was a good way to talk about world structure and how generally in games you might have a linear world with pockets of exploration or you have like fully open and and the night journey is a good extreme example of that where it's like showing up at a garden and you can kind of come and go whenever and there's not really a decisive beginning and end or something so the the next the cluster of three um we're looking at um games that are all about movement and so where the enjoyment is in the movement so really conventional in a way and so i use wii sports in that for the actual being this decisive move of having motion controls uh taiko no tatsujin in japan is such a fantastic series and i mean it's coming here a bit more now but uh, you know nothing like playing it in the arcade game we were playing taiko drums and making a racket and uh Lastly, the zone mode in Wipeout HD, where all it does is get you going faster and faster and faster on the track. And so how, you know, flow theory is this kind of mess of a thing that I mostly avoided in the book. But in that case, it's a pretty thinly, you know, that that's the time to talk about it, because that's very much what that game is set up to do as a scaffold. One of the things spaces do, right, is they scaffold our movement. And so those games do that in quite an aggressive way, actually. And then probably maybe of most interest to most people in game studies is the chapter after that, because it gets into how the moment-to-moment um, -moment movements, and this is back into the image schemas, have deeper like narrative meaning or meaning in the context of the world. And so in a sense, that's probably the most exciting chapter in the book for some new ways of getting into other things. And so the games in there um, is Shelter, where he plays the mother badger, taking your cubs through the woods and trying to keep them safe. Shadow of the Colossus, of course, super classic for good reason. 
and uh, Katamari Damashi and its parody of consumption. So those are all fun ones to talk about and look at more. And then the final chapter is the most avant-garde where it's looking at games that kind of expect you to learn new ways of perceiving a space and they don't let you proceed through the game until you've enhanced your perception by playing the game. So um, in there we have uh, 13 Gates, which I'm assuming many people won't be aware of, but I highly recommend digging it up. And I think you might need to find a Flash player or something now to be able to get it to work, but unfortunately so. But it's, yeah, it just gets you to navigate a 3D space where all you can see is uh, patterned vertical strips. And the strips change width as you look around. And it is a total mind mind game but then once you learn it feels really strange to like be able to play it (laughs) because you somehow figured out how to do it after you know five minutes of fumbling around and then uh super hot i expect many people will know and so having time be linked to your motion in the game world and i mean it has this whole theme around embodiment so i say a few things about that in there and finally the witness which is really unique because they hired a architect and landscape architect to do the world of the witness so it's a really um interesting case study of like what game environments might look like if if we started in the industry to start to pull more architects into the team and bring some of the considerations we bring and in a way you could say it's as well i think i say it adds spatial realism to that game in a funny way it's still candy coated graphics and beautiful colors and everything but the actual uh, configuration of the spaces and the way in which they've decayed and the narrative of how this island was built you know never spoken in the game never talked about but kind of apparent through the the way the ruins are was really really fantastic and so and it also has you do this whole perceiving patterns in the world thing yeah and something that stands out about some of your examples is that that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation was kind of not shying away from looking at games that have very low i mean i guess people would refer to it differently low interaction or low player agency or um or what yeah things like that where the main affordance of the space is to just experience it and move through it yeah did you get any pushback from game studies folks for doing that like it felt like it felt like there was a moment in it where you were answering the not really a question oh, yeah. <laughs> it's more of a comment thing that happens at digra um, so oh, i was sure. wondering <laughs> if that was something you'd experienced uh i haven't firsthand but of course i'm deeply aware of it and so it's kind of like knowing that that will be a thing for some people and i mean even my partner she was a little bit on a few of the examples because she's also got a background in game studies and um it was kind of like well you know i'm just standing by this because i think coming from architecture and you know you've got decades of people in architecture interested in film right and the decisive move from representation to simulation it's actually a huge deal that you can look around in a walking simulator and i think for video games people where we're used to doing more it feels like something's taken away but if you think of it as a step from painting or film or drawing into suddenly you can like walk around it's actually gigantic and so i think yeah it's true that that's not necessarily a game and i i make no claims that it is and i don't feel the need to, I suppose. But I think, um, you know, maybe it'll have its own name, a better name than Walking Simulator or something at some point. But for now, you know, virtual environments, and as you saw in the book, I mean, I use that term a lot more. I kind of sometimes interchange with video game environment, but really the interest was virtual environments. Many of these are video games. Some of them might not be. And, um, and actually a good video game has a lot to learn 
from any interesting virtual environment, whether or not it's a game. So you could easily pull these things back into other games that are more gamey and still have a better environment as a result. I mean, Nascence is a great example of that, actually. Though it's kind of a game, it has enough challenge that it's probably a game. Yeah, it seems like a big part of what you're contributing is some very clear ways of talking about the expressive potential of, um, of that whole genre. It does a lot to challenge the assumption that the main way that a walking sim can be expressive is by, like, doing stereotyped environmental storytelling where you're just dropping pieces of narrative, like, like audio tapes and that. And you're describing the way that those spaces are themselves a mode of expression, and this is how that functions. Yeah, and, and spatial expression is so ambiguous, and I think I kind of say that in the book. So I briefly touch on multimodal communication theory at the beginning and this idea that different modes can be used to communicate different things. And man, your hands are so tied as soon as you don't have voiceover audio or um, some kind of writing in the game, just because it's it's actually very ambiguous to express things through space. It might be very meaningful, like a good abstract painting or something, but it's not it's not the kind of storytelling that you might get from something else. And so even a funny example in Nascence that I think is so smart and powerful in a game that's trying to make you feel kind of weak is that you have a run button, but you have to tap your mouse repetitively to breathe in sync with the girl's breath as to just keep running and not run out of breath. And it's such a small thing that is kind of this huge impact of feeling so much more, I don't know, vulnerable and weak. And you can die very easily in that game from falling too high and sometimes machines and stuff. And so it's it's this, yeah, this you know, that one little move with the breath thing adds this whole other layer of expression in into a space that wouldn't have it otherwise. And it's just part of your, you know, basic affordances of controlling the avatar in that case. Before we wrap up, I will ask one more question, um, which is what role the process of writing, researching, and publishing this book has had in your architecture practice today? Yeah, well, I guess um, I'm, I might be giving a sort of sideways answer to this, sort of. So I said at the beginning, it definitely has me thinking more about the um, expressive, just how, you know, uh, the experience of people in buildings. I was always interested in that, but thinking about it so much more explicitly in games, I think was really useful for that. I mean, it applies to some types of buildings more than others, and I don't know that I've had too many of those on the boards lately. But um, the other big way, I think the process of doing this book, I mean, I had some ideas about where to start, but so many of the little summaries at the end of the chapters in the book itself were sort of discoveries for me in the process of writing it, which is, of course, how this always goes, but was such a pleasant you know, I started with structure in some ways, so a little bit of me was maybe worried that it wouldn't result in these things. But as I did, I felt it really did. And so some of those things include the nature of challenge in spaces, especially by the end, I talk about some ways in which virtual built environments are phenomenologically just always going to be different than physical ones. And that was a really interesting thing to get into. So to give a couple examples from that, because I think they're kind of exciting is this um, inverted thing between order and entropy. So it's really hard to build perfect geometry and architecture to build like a 20 meter by 20 meter cube out of concrete and have it be built correctly without things slumping in bad ways. But it's super easy in a video game. And we spend all this time making the game world look less perfect than it just would be. And so I think that's a really funny thing, I guess, between these two sides of things. I mean, there's a famous 
building by the architect Louis Kahn down in the Salk Institute. And it honestly, like some people from a game background would go there and they would just be like, oh, this Counter-Strike level, because it's all this pattern concrete, really repetitive. And this is this like iconic building that amazes people, right? And honestly, it's it's that era of graphics, basically. <laughs> and so, I mean, I thought that was, so that's one and one last one that I think is a nice maybe one to leave us off on too is by the end of the book, I kind of realized thinking about, you know, these game environments, what is their, how do, how do they exist in our life, right? And that they had this kind of dual orientation. So in one sense, these game spaces pull us deeper into the fictional world of the game and into these kind of escapist elsewheres. And I think it can be positive escapism to really think about other things as well as negative escapism. But then there's also a way in which they can pull us back into the real world. And so, you know, when I make models as part of my job in architecture, those are about the real world at the end of the day. And that model in some way is going to inform something we do in the real world. Of course, augmented reality games are entirely about that um, in some sense. And it's interesting, I guess, for me to step back and see, oh, there's this pull going on in both directions and a single game might do both. So the witness pulls us into its lush environment, but it also is kind of asking us to learn to see the real world differently. And I've certainly had an after effect from playing that game where I'm kind of looking around in ways I wasn't a week ago. So I think that, that kind of left me this like, all right, so games are going in both directions. What does that really mean, you know, <laughs> from a bigger, bigger questions? Oh, that's a beautiful thought to end on. Well, thank you so much for this. It's been great talking with you. Um, do you want to repeat the name of your book just so that uh, the listeners have got it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's called Expressive Space, Embodying Meaning in Video Game Environments. Great. Um, yeah, thanks so much. It's been great talking with you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.com.